pastor needs you this morning as he comes up, he delivers the word. He doesn't come up here in his own strength. I know he doesn't want to. None of us do. So, Lord, would you give him the strength that he needs today? Lord, the encouragement that he needs to speak to all of us this morning. And, Lord, can we open up our hearts, our minds to hear what you're saying in Jesus' name. Thank you, brother. I treasure those prayers. I treasure those prayers. I don't want to be in my own strength. You have a new member of your team. Who's this? That's Michael. Hello, Michael. Good job. Good job. <laughs> Welcome, everybody. Happy Thanksgiving for the kind of the last vestiges of our Thanksgiving. Uh, I know that our boy's heading back home to school today, and I suspect many of you are. I hope you had a wonderful week. This was another significant week for us, though. You heard Pastor Larry mention it. We celebrated 50 years of worshiping in our little chapel down there. Exactly yesterday, it was 50 years ago, that they had their first worship in, uh, worship service in our, our little chapel, which is really, really cool because 50 years later now, on Saturday nights, we're worshiping there again. The place was packed out, and if you haven't tried it out, you ought to come some Saturday night. Here's what was really cool, though. Do you know that before Chapel Hill, there were Presbyterians somewhere else? in this town? Did you know that? Where, do you know where the church was, the Presbyterian church? Yeah, the little white church on Pioneer. Do you know the one I'm talking about? That was the Presbyterian church. It was Memorial Press. So last night, two really up-in-age people showed up for our celebration of our 50 years. It turns out that this guy, Don, was ordained as, a, as a, an elder down in Memorial Press 70 years ago. And he heard that, that we were... And so their church was the one that bought the land and, and cleared the land. He worked with them. And so he came back. He wanted to be here in his 90s to celebrate the uh, 50 years of, of his vision, their vision. And uh, I suspect that the music was a little different uh, than, than what they were used to. But it was so cool. And I said, look around you. Don and Jan were both there. I said, look around you. This, this is your legacy. These are your spiritual children, spiritual grandchildren, spiritual great-grandchildren. I bet you didn't have any dream of what would happen. So anyway, it was very cool. Someday maybe you will be old and you will be celebrating your spiritual legacy. I hope that that's true. This is the weekend we kick off Advent. As you have heard already, Advent is the celebration of the coming of Jesus. So we're going to take kind of a, a, a break from the story, from the preaching series on the story. And we'll start back up in, in January. But I still want you to read the last chapter before the break. So this coming week is chapter 12. And I want you to read it. Uh, last week we, we had the first, our first introduction to, uh, to David, right? And it was kind of the good side of David. We saw this young man, this vibrant shepherd, and he shows up and he, he's the one that ends up being or, uh, uh, anointed to be the new, next king, right? And so in this last week we read about David full of faith and, and full of the, 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 the thing that the love, the Lord loves most in someone. What was the, what was the, the, the virtue that David had that God loved most? His heart, his great heart. And so we, this last week we saw what a great heart that trust God can do. We have the story of David and Goliath and the early days of David's conquest. So how many, how many read this last week, chapter 11? All right, good for you. Now, even though we're moving uh, to a little, little different theme, I want you to read chapter 12. This week it's the story of the other half of David, and it's a, a heartbreaking story, actually, because it's the story of how power corrupts. You're going to read this week about... 
David, good, pure David, the best king Israel ever had. You're going to read how he seduces a woman, another man's wife, Bathsheba, and she gets pregnant. And then David, to cover his tracks, you know what he does? He, he plots to have her husband, Uriah, faithful Uriah, left at the front lines so that he will be killed and it will cover his sin. It is, you need to read this and it's going to break your heart when you read it because you're going to read it and you're going to say, wow, even David, good David, King David, the, 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 the king that had a, man, a, a heart after God's, even he has failed. And the reason I want you to read it is because in your disappointment, you're going to remember, you know what, there's another king. There's another good king, a pure king, who has never failed, never fallen, never disappointed us. That's King Jesus. And that's who we're celebrating in this season. So read about the best that human beings could do in David, and then you're going to be reminded of the the Lord, the king who never, never fails us, never lets us down. That's that's what Advent is going to be about this season. I want to tell you something about myself that you may not know, although after 28 plus years, I I think I've told you nearly every story there is to tell, but how how many knew that I used to fly airplanes? Anybody knew that? Um, I learned how to do this in in Bakersfield, and uh, that way back a long time ago, and there's something about taking off in in a private little airplane and getting up thousands of feet above the ground and everything's small and you kind of get a great sense of perspective of where you are and, oh, that's where that is. It's just this kind of overview look. And I enjoyed that very much, but I got to admit to you, and my mom was horrified because she had never heard this before. She was here for a service. Um, the, The thing I enjoyed more about my flying was when I flew the riverbed. There's a dry riverbed that runs through Kern County. It's called the Kern River. And it runs for miles and miles. It's very desolate and very windy. And so the thing that I enjoyed doing the most was I would bring that airplane down from thousands of feet in the air down to about 100 feet over the ground. And I would fly the riverbed and follow the curves. And if there was a bridge, you go up over the bridge. And if there were high power lines, you go down under the power lines. And yes, it was illegal. Yes, it was stupid. Yes, it was awesome. <laughs> and there's something about being 100 feet off the ground, though, flying at that speed. Every tree, every rock, every hill, every power line, it is, stands out in very stark relief. You see it very, very clearly. For the last couple of months since September, we've been up at several thousand feet in the air. We've been looking at the Bible, the story of God's story. We've been looking from way up here. We've seen the the grand saga. We've seen the unity of how the whole Bible works together. We've even seen glimpses of Jesus who appears from the very first part of Scripture, right? What are we calling that? The scarlet thread. We've seen the scarlet thread weaving its way through. So we've seen that. And, and there's value in that. It's great for us to begin to get the bigger picture. But for the next few weeks, we're going to come down for 1,000 feet to 100 feet above the ground. I want us, for the next few weeks of the weeks of Advent, I want us to dive down and dig in deep. We're going to descend into a, a book called Colossians. And we're going to spend four weeks in one section of that book. So we're going to go from the thousands of feet up to focusing on one of the richest passages of scripture, a Christological passage of scripture. Christological means the study of Jesus. And this is Paul's 
uh, I think it's probably the grandest image that we have of Christ that you'll find painted anywhere. It was an old ancient hymn, actually. And I don't think you find Christ painted in more vivid tones than you do in Paul's letter to Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and following. We're calling this series, Joy for Every Longing Heart. Joy for Every Longing Heart. Because we think that when you look at this passage, this passage that describes Jesus in such rich tones, it answers questions that, are, that we find in every human heart. Questions like, can we know God? And, and questions like, what does the future hold? And, and, is, uh, and does the church matter? And is God with us? And is there any hope? I don't think there's a person here who hasn't thought of some, if not all, of these questions. And Paul, we think Paul answers those questions in this great majestic passage of Scripture. So that's what we're going to do for the next few weeks. Are you game to do this? We're going to go from here down in and we're going to luxuriate. We're going to stew in the, the wonder of this great Christ hymn in Colossians 1. You up for that? You don't need to applaud, but just some raucous response would be awesome. Because whether you're up for it or not, that's what we're doing. So I, I hope you're going to do it. So this weekend, we're going we're gonna to ask the question, can we know God? Can we know God? One of the most exciting things about being pastor of this sweetheart church right now is the growth in young families. We are booming in our young families. We've got over 200 young families uh, with children below fifth grade. And, uh, and Cindy and I have really felt a call to begin ministering in, in to that group. So we uh, hosted a potluck last Sunday and we talked about how to raise your kids spiritually. At the end of that time, we had a question and answer. And one woman raised her hand. She said, I was going home with my six-year-old daughter the other day and she said, out of the blue, there is no God. How would you handle that? I said, Cindy, why don't you tell them how to handle that? (laughs) And she did a great job. But if Paul had been there, he might have turned to this passage in Colossians because the Apostle Paul cries out, absolutely there is a God and you can know him. So let's turn to this passage, Colossians chapter 1. It's in verse uh, page 994 in your pew Bibles. And don't just read it. Listen and stew in the wonder of, of this great, great hymn of, to Christ. Paul's writing about Jesus. He, here's what he says about him. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This is the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Father, thank you for your word and we pray that it will speak to our hearts, God. 
take us into the depths of what it means to know and to love and to see Jesus for who he is. That's what we're asking in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the great questions, is there a God? Is there a God? And if there is a God, can we know God? You might be surprised how many religions actually don't believe it's possible to really know God. One uh, Jewish philosopher from the last, uh, the last century wrote this. He said, God is unknowable. That, this is the fundamental premise of the Bible. A, uh, a, a Hindu teacher wrote this. You should know that God cannot be known. And then a contemporary Muslim teacher put it even more succinctly. God is utterly unknowable. So the, the witness of many world religions and millions of people is you really can't know God. You, there is no way of knowing God. He's too hidden, too distant, too far away. And then the apostle Paul steps up and he raises his hand and he says, excuse me, excuse me, but you are wrong. You can know God. And Jesus is the image of that invisible God. Jesus is the image of that invisible God. You'll recognize the Greek word, even though your Greek may be a little rusty. The Greek word for image in that passage is icon, from which we get the word icon. Right, very good. You guys are sharp as ever. Icon was used to describe the image on a coin. That was an icon. It was also used, that was the tool that you used to strike the image on a coin. Icon means imprint or stamp of authenticity or exact expression. So for Paul to say that Jesus was the icon of the invisible God was Paul's way of saying Jesus is the exact expression of God. And, and he wasn't just saying that, that Paul looked like his daddy in heaven. And that Jesus looked like his daddy in heaven. Last Tuesday was baby day around here because our own staff is contributing to this baby boom. We have three families that have new, uh, new babies. And so that was their coming out party on, on Tuesday. And all three families were there and they introduced their, their kids to us in person. Well, they're not here in person, but I thought you might like to meet them. So here's the first one, Ezra White. Ezra is a son of uh, Ellis and Rachel. He's got hair just like his dad. And then uh, here is Bennett Palmer. Bennett is the daughter of Ryan and Allison Palmer. And then here is Reed Hackman. That's Pastor Larry and Megan's uh, child. And Megan, when she got up to introduce uh, Reed, said, you know, he looks just like Larry. And the more we think about it, you know, it's... (laughs) He does look just like Larry, doesn't he? I mean... And then we thought, well, you know what? Ezra looks a lot like his dad, too. Take a look. (laughs) There's an expression that says he is the spitting image of his father. And, you know, you look up there, he is the spitting image of his dad. You've You've heard that expression before. But when Paul writes that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, he is saying much more than that he looks like his dad. Paul is saying... That when we look at Jesus, we are looking at God. Not just a messenger from God, not just a a junior member of the deity. When we look at Jesus, we are looking at God. Now I want you to understand something. 
This is the most audacious claim of the Christian faith. What I just said, that when you look at Jesus, you're looking at God, that is the most audacious claim of the Christian faith. Jews consider it blasphemy. Muslims consider it blasphemy. Hindus just consider it ridiculous. But that is the, the, the claim that we are making. And it's what Paul asserted. It's what Orthodox Christians have believed for 2,000 years. And Paul asserted this, and we believe it because Jesus taught it. And he lived it. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And Jesus performed acts of creation and dominion over creation that only God, only the Creator can perform. He turned water into a wine. That's creation. He multiplied fish and loaves from a few to thousands. That's creation. He ordered the winds to be still. He took dominion over the weather. And, by the way, he raised dead people up to life. Who can do that but the Creator? And by the way, was himself raised to life from death. Only the Creator, God, can do such things. Listen, if those stories are not true, if these things that you've learned in your Sunday school classes are just made up, then the claims about Jesus being divine, that he's actually God, it's, it's fraudulent. But if the things I just mentioned are, in fact, true then the greatest and most audacious claim of the Christian faith, and by the way, the same claim that we make when we celebrate Advent and we celebrate Christmas, that claim rings out from Paul's writings that we're looking at today. For Paul says that Jesus, in Jesus, God has revealed himself perfectly. In Jesus, God has come calling upon his people. And so to the six-year-old doubter and the 76-year-old doubter, who says, I don't know if there's a God. And if so, why doesn't he show himself? Paul says, what do you think Jesus was doing? To the person who says, why is God hidden? Why doesn't he reveal himself? Paul says, he did reveal himself perfectly in Jesus. He is the image. He is the icon of the invisible God. This is so important for us to understand. It is essential, as a matter of fact. It is at the core of what it means to be Christian. And it's important because many folks who call themselves Christians still have an inadequate view of who Jesus is. They think he's a great teacher. They think he's a great moral leader. They think he's a prophet. They think he's all of these things, which is entirely true. But they're trying to describe who Jesus is by his job description. And Paul says that's not enough. Jesus is not the sum of what he does. Jesus is something way more than that. He is God. Paul teaches that Jesus is more than the things he does. In the flesh, God has appeared to us in him. So when someone complains to you that God is hidden or God is distant, your first response ought to be, no, he's not. He is not hidden. He came to earth in human form. His name is Jesus. If you want to see God, God is there to be seen. If you want to know who God is, if you want to know God's heart, behold, Jesus He is the God of compassion who touches the leper and welcomes the prostitutes and dines with the tax collector. He's the God of of love who will not abandon his broken children. He's the God of grace who offers the forgiveness we do not deserve and he pays the price for it himself by his own suffering and death. You want to know who God is? Do you know what God looks like? Then behold Jesus for you are looking at God. 
He is the icon of the invisible God. That's what Paul says. That's the first thing that we learn. But I want us to dig deeper. We also learn not only that Jesus is God in the flesh, we learn that God wants us to know him. He has always wanted us to know him. How many of you, when you were growing up, you watched The Wizard of Oz every year on TV? Are they still showing that on TV? Do they? I haven't seen it for a while, which is fine with me because those flying monkeys freak me out. They still freak me out. I hate those things. But you know that the end of the story is Dorothy and her friends, they make their way to Oz and they discover that the great Wizard of Oz is in fact a complete phony baloney. He's just a special effects artist. And do you remember the words that he speaks when they're about to discover the truth and he's trying to, to chase them off? Remember what he says? Pay no attention to the man, what? Behind the curtain. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Many of the religions of the world treat God like the Wizard of Oz. He is hidden. He is distant. He's manipulative. But the God of the Bible we discover to be something very much different. This God doesn't want to hide. He doesn't want to stay behind the curtain. He wants to have a relationship with his creation. He always has. And here's where having gone through the story begins to benefit us. Think back to Genesis. Remember the story of the garden? God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the garden every day. Remember that? And then when they ate the forbidden fruit, they go hiding from God. What does God do? Does he... This turn no, he goes looking for them, and you hear the plaintive cry of God that has that has rung down through the ages. Where are you, my beloved children? Where are you? God wanted a relationship with them. Then he shows up centuries later, millennia later, in a place called Ur, uh, for no reason that Abram could figure out. God just shows up on his own initiative, and he approaches this old pagan named Abram. He says, "Tell you what." I want to have a relationship with you. I want you to be my man. I will be your God. And we're going to create a great nation. And through you, we're going to bless the whole world. Abram didn't even see it coming. He certainly had nothing to do with it. This was the God who does not want to be hidden. He wanted to be with his people. And then we come to Moses. Remember, at the time of Moses, it was believed, if you know the name of a God, you control the God. It was like magic. So when Moses is up on Mount Sinai and God has just said, I want you to go Pharaoh, go to Pharaoh and set my people free. Remember the question Moses asked God? What is your name? Who shall I say has sent me? And God doesn't even blink. Tell him Yahweh sent you. I'm not afraid of giving you my name. I don't think that somehow that's going to give you a power over me. You tell Pharaoh that Yahweh, I am who I am, has sent you. As, in fact, we discover the Bible is the story all from beginning to end of a God who wants to be known, who wants to reveal himself to his children. So when we celebrate the coming of Jesus in the flesh in Bethlehem, it's not like that was plan Z because plan A, B, C, D, and E all failed and God had to come up with something else. We discover, in fact, that this was God's plan all along. It was the culmination of his desire to have an intimate relationship with his children. He is the image of the invisible God. Why should this matter to us, though? Other than being interesting and being true, why should it matter to us? Here's why. Because there are people sitting here today who are going through hard stuff, painful 
broken stuff. We prayed for some of those people today. And they're praying their hearts out. And they're crying their eyes out. And they are feeling like God is a no-show. They feel like God is hiding from them or toying with them, teasing them or something. And they, they begin to wonder. You are wondering, some of you, does God really care about my pain? Does God really understand what I'm going through? Do I really matter to God? And the Apostle Paul jumps up on the stage one more time and says, Ooh, 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 I have the answer. Here's your proof. Jesus is the icon, the image of the invisible God. His coming to earth, his living, his suffering, his dying is the ultimate declaration of God that says, I care, I understand, and you matter to me. When you cry out to God, you're crying out to Jesus. When you bewail your pain, your loss, your bereavement, your abandonment, your fear and failure, you are doing so to a God who brought all of that upon himself in the person of Jesus. So to this answer, can we know God? Paul's answer is an emphatic, absolutely we know God. Just look at Jesus and you have met him. That is how much Jesus cares. That is how much God cares for you. There's one more reason that this verse matters. I want you to hang in there with me because this gets a little deeper. Do you know the first time that word icon appears in the Bible? It's way back in Genesis chapter 1. It's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And back in Genesis 1 verse 26, when God in the process of creation says, let us make man in our own image, our own icon. The very first appearance of it is way back at the start of creation. If Jesus is, now get this, if Jesus is the image, the icon of the invisible God, and if we are made in his image, in his icon, then when we look at Jesus, we see what we were created to be. You got that? If Jesus is the image of God, and we were created in his image, then when we look at Jesus we see what we were created by God to be. There's a temple that was uncovered in Delphi. It was a temple, an ancient Greek temple to the, to the god Apollo. And on the walls they found an inscription of a phrase that you might be familiar with. It says, know thyself. Know thyself. It was the belief that, of these philosophers that the, the path to true knowledge, to true understanding, began with this, that you must know thyself. And what Paul is telling us is, when we look at Jesus, what he did, how he lived, how he loved, how he suffered, how he prevailed, we are looking at what we were created to be before sin marred and scarred us. Do you want to know thyself as God intended you to be? Then look at Jesus. Paul says. What that means is that we don't come to church just to learn about God, although we do. We don't come to church just to have our sins forgiven, although that happens too. We come to church, we go to youth group, we go to life group, we're part of God's family for one purpose, to become more like Jesus. And this isn't for ourselves. This isn't so that we have bragging rights about how we're holier than the next person in the pew. We discover that the reason we are seeking to become more and more like Jesus, the reason that the Holy Spirit wants to make us more and more like Jesus, is that we might bless the world that doesn't know who Jesus is. 
Do you realize we are fulfilling, we are fulfilling what God promised to Abram? Through us, he wants to bless the world because we are the ones that get to show the world who Jesus is. You, do you realize that you are the only gospel some people will ever read? Do you realize you are the only image of God that some people will ever see? That is what is at stake here. And the question is, does that thrill you or does that terrify you? The idea that if they ever never saw anyone else, I'm the only example of God's love that they will ever see. What would that mean for them? Would they be drawn to that? Would they be attracted to that? Or would they be completely turned off by it? If you don't want to become more like Jesus, then you're just playing at religion. You're a poser. You're a play actor, a hypocrite. If you don't want to become more like Jesus, that is why we are here. But if you long to have the scarred and marred image of God within you become more and more like what God intended you to be by the power of Jesus' Spirit, then the place to start is by looking full in the face of Jesus, beholding Jesus, seeing who he is, and saying, Lord Jesus, make me more like you. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. When you look at Christ, you're seeing God and you're seeing what God longs to make you to be. Lord, that is deep and a little bit intimidating because I bet most of us feel like we're so far from being like Christ that our image is so is still so scarred and so marred and the thought that people looking at us, we might be the witness that will either take, draw them towards you or push them away, that is intimidating too. Thank you, God, that this is not dependent upon us, but that your spirit is at work changing us into the person of Jesus one degree by another by another. Lord, the, the church doesn't need any more posers. The church doesn't need any more people who are playing at religion who show up because this is their spiritual thing to do, but have no interest in actually being transformed by you into the person you long for them to be. We don't need any more. I pray that this day your spirit would capture our hearts and you would enliven that part of the image of Christ that is still within us and you would grow it and burn it in us so that we long to be more and more the person you created us to be. For we ask this in Jesus' name.